Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The steal by Iverson, posting it in! He won it! Wow. He won the game! Be there to say absolutely no way from Scott. Yeah, do you love this game? Buckle up and get comfortable. Another awesome, spine-tingling, uh, captivating edition of Sixers Talk coming your way. Brought to you by Wilmington University. Wilmu Works, Danny Pommels, the level-headed one, Paul Hudrick. Uh, we are here bright and early here on a Monday morning talking about the last dance once again, episode seven and eight in the books. I said buckle up and get comfy because this is going to be a juicy podcast. We got Larry Brown, uh, former Sixers head coach, NBA Hall of Famer, yada, yada, yada. I don't need to explain his resume. We all know took eight different teams to the playoffs. You know the deal. Um, no coach has ever done that before. Uh, he's joining us here on the pod for a lengthy discussion on a lot of different topics. This Last Dance documentary, of course, uh, the the practice rant with Allen Iverson, which we Paul has written a juicy article on that on the website, NBCSportsFilophy.com. So many other things uh, about Mike. Obviously, Larry Brown, a UNC guy, so they go back. Um <laughs> I guess I'll just jump into the last dance. I will also talk about the the worst five draft picks in Sixers history. We'll get to that as well. Paul's article on the website. Be sure to check that out most recently. Um, people are are clicking and enjoying that and commenting. I saw somebody get upset because Evan Turner wasn't on the list. <laughs> but I guess I'm giving a little bit away. But uh, Michael Jordan, don't cross this man. Do not. He will figure out a way to, in his mind, make sure that you are the person he feels infringed upon his well-being and use that against you to defeat you. So uh, apparently his, uh, another UNC guy, uh, George Carl, went against him in the finals. He felt like he didn't say hello. when he, Oh, excuse me, I'm on another side of the restaurant and didn't come to say <laughs> hello to Michael. I left and didn't say hello. So he used that as fuel to whoop the Sonics in the finals, bro. The elite amount of petty that we're seeing oh, with Jordan is just, it's just something. And it's, I know a lot of people, and I get it, a lot of people comment like, ah, this, you know, it's, is, is it a true documentary, whatever, because it's, it's all very slanted towards Michael. And that's fair. It is. But man, like the pettiness is so ridiculous, but at the same time, I love it because it's just so, oh. like, like, dude, and then he like, he made up the thing. I can't remember like dude's name. LeBradford, LeBradford Smith. Something like that, and he just said, and the dude hung like thirty. The guy was like nobody. He's just like some quiet kid who just had the night of his life. And Michael right. got so pissed off by it that he said, "Hey, you know what? I'm hanging forty-seven on this dude." He said, "I'm gonna put score as many points as that dude in the first half." He scored thirty-six in the next game. It was the next night. Like, yeah, a home and home. Did Did you uh, see the backstory on that Teddy. though? Did you see the backstory on that though? As um, far apparently, as- well, apparently the producers kind of screwed up because. David Aldridge was a beat writer for the Bullets at that time. So he was ah. with the team, and they didn't ask him about Michael saying – supposedly <laughs> supposedly Mike made up the whole thing about the right. rapper saying, good game, Mike. Like, right. like, he didn't say that. He did right. not even say that. Michael made that up. Well, didn't Michael admit that? 
I, I could be missing. I could be wrong, but I thought Michael. I, did, did I didn't that. see that in the documentary. I just saw David Aldridge uh, afterwards saying, "Like, I, don't you think that would have been like the headline of my story if if he had said that to Mike? <laughs> like, I'm with the kid. I like, I, I'm on the plane. I'm traveling with the team. Right. You know what I mean? No, so, dude, I, I'm almost positive that Michael basically said, "Okay, I made that up." Like, he just he almost like did it to himself to get himself in oh that my frame gosh. of mind that he was like, dude. Well, it's, it's funny too, Dan, because, like, I, I remember – this is just, like, one example that came to my head. When the Sixers played the Nets um, in the playoffs, and there was the Jared Dudley stuff that came out. I remember Ben Simmons was terrible in game one, got booed. There was the Jared Dudley stuff. Then he comes out and has a monster game. I remember a lot of people being like, oh, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't need something like that to get you motivated. motivated. The greatest player of all time needed that pettiness and those little things to push him up an extra level. All these guys need it. If you're a competitive person, when stuff like that happens, it elevates you. In Jordan's case, he flat made stuff up to make himself – to put himself at a higher level. So, I, I, to me, that's what it shows. That's the biggest thing I get from him is that this guy was just so damn competitive that he needed to make things – he needed to conjure up slights in order to, to, to give it to people. It's crazy. Not, and, and I guess when he didn't have something that an opponent did, he just leaned, fell back on his old faithful Jerry Krause. Right. And just, uh, yeah. <laughs> and just, just use that as, as uh, momentum. But um, along with the whole, uh, you know, um, slights on uh, with the LeBradford Smith thing and um, the Seattle Sonics and whatnot is the Scott Burrell stuff, which we saw mm. like him just – wearing him out in practice and just giving him the business. But that was his initiation kind of like into, you know, I think he said in the documentary, you know, these guys hadn't gone through what I had gone through. Like these are old, like he had been with the bulls when they were, you know, playing in, you know, uh, you know, those the whack arena and, and like, you know, he had come along and, and, and built the team up in a way. And he felt like they had to be initiated into that culture and he gave them the business you know, bringing them along like that, particularly Scott Burrell. Yeah, and it was just again, it's just, you get. A, I got a conflicting feeling on it. Like a part of me thinks it's great, but then a part of me is like, man, like this Scott Burrell seems like he was just the nicest dude. And it's just some people don't have that personality. It doesn't mean they're bad at basketball. It doesn't mean they can't help you win because, as we saw in the documentary, Scotty Burrell was a decent NBA player. He helped them win, but it's just he was just. It just wasn't – he wasn't wired that way. And, there's a re- and, like, and I think Larry touched on it when we talked to him, and I think other coaches have talked – like I think PJ and even Coach Lyon. It wasn't just that he was talented and he was more talented than everyone else. It's that he was more driven than anyone else. So, of course, like, it's just some guys just aren't going to be on his level. And for him, it was almost like hard for him to comprehend, like, how could you not be on my level? How could you not want to win like I want to win? And when guys work like that, it, not only to me, Danny, was not only just an initiation, it was, no, like, you need to get on my level if you want to play on this team. Man, and we're seeing, like, some gem reactions from Michael Jordan, like, the, these memes that are coming out of this documentary, man. Like, so they show him the video of Gary Payton mm. talking about, you know, Gar and Mike when the team's down 3-0 in the finals when George Carl had put him on other players and hadn't put the glove, quote unquote, on Mike and Mike's looking at the thing and just erupts into laughter, like, <laughs> like, he's like a little kid, like, like looking at Gary talk about how he uh, shook Mike up and like, 
held him to poor shooting nights. And if he had put uh, George Carl had been on Mike sooner, that the series could have turned out differently. So um, I, just just the fact that there was basketball in Seattle, like like bro, this twelfth man mentality. You know, you look at the Seattle Seahawks, like. I, I I feel a little jaded, man. Ricky Pierce and all those guys and dude, know. Sean Kemp. Sean, Sean Kemp, Kemp was because as we've talked about, so many legalized Kemp. Ah, oh, dude, that sign was incredible, <laughs> incredible sign, incredible creativity. As we talked about many times in this podcast, the Sixers were so bad during that era, and I still like. I was we saw them once again with those jerseys getting Kemp. laid up by Scottie Pippen. So, you know, for me growing up, yeah, like I, I was still a Sixers fan, but because of that, you, you start liking other guys around the league because your team doesn't have that guy. So for me, Sean Kemp was far and away. Like, talk about disrespectful dunkers and athletic. Like, to me, he was a better version of Blake Griffin before Blake Griffin came around. Like, because that's what he, because he was just dunking on people with no regard for humanity and just, oh, and, and he was so athletic and jump out of the building. And I just, it's, it, it was so sad in his career because, I, I mean, I, I don't know what he went through, but clearly he went through some stuff because, you know, when he, when he gets to Cleveland, he gains a lot of weight and just he turns into, like, a shell of himself by the time he's, like, in his early 30s. But, my gosh, Sean Kemp was one of the most fun players to watch for me in, in my life. Young Eric Snow. Um, we we yeah. will hear Larry Brown talk about Eric Snow in the podcast coming up because the Sixers were able to uh, grab him off that Sonics bench and turn him into – what he became in 2001 of, um, you know, a running mate with Allen Iverson in the backcourt. Um, we'll hear Larry Brown talk about what it was like re-signing him and how that pertained to, you know, the George Lynch situation and whatnot. We'll hear that coming up as well. But uh, one another thing that stuck out, you know, just to jump off the Seattle stuff, because there's so many other things to get to, is uh, the baseball situation with Mike and him stepping away and, you know, the, the conspiracy theories around why he stepped away and, and what, you know, what we heard from, you know, um, David Stern there in the um, documentary talking about that there was no conspiracy theory and whatnot. Um, we've had guests here on the podcast who have mentioned that they didn't feel like he stepped away just because, um, you know, he wanted to play baseball, that there was something there. So uh, what did you make of all that, Paul, with him, you know, becoming a baseball player and hitting over 200 uh, for a baseball team, something we've seen like, you know, other athletes struggle to do? I mean, he didn't play baseball for seven years of his life, or more than that. What was it? I can't remember what it was. It was 14 well, yeah, years. I mean, he was, yeah, right, exactly. 14 years of his life, school, he, right. he hadn't played. He hadn't played baseball. And to be able to pick up a bat, and that just shows you the incredible amount of athleticism and focus and determination he had to be able to do anything at a minor league level is insane. And you heard multiple people say if he had kept up with it, they think he would have eventually been a major league baseball player. Former Phillies coach, Terry so, Francona. Terry Francona, Tito, yeah. 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 Uh, so – I want to say yes and no to this, Danny, because I, I I don't believe the conspiracy theories of, oh, David Stern. Like, I can't buy that at all because that like, – someone said it. He was their cash cow. Michael Jordan was the NBA. The Bulls were the team. Why would you want to take that away? Right, you devalue the league, yeah, devalue the franchise. No yeah. sense. My thing is, watching this documentary is it, it was a culmination of events. One, I think he was already starting to feel with the gambling stuff and with so all the media pressure, he was already starting to feel burnt out from all of it, from, from, from holding it all up and from keeping it all together. And I think he, 
listen, he was the greatest of all time. That doesn't mean he, like, again, as we've seen, he wasn't perfect, and he had his weaker, more vulnerable moments. And I think he was already there. And then when his dad gets murdered, I think that just puts him over the top. And he's like, no, I can't. Like, I, I, I like he said, you, the press conference when he was talking about his dad, like the first one, he said, I'm not even thinking about basketball right now. And I haven't been thinking about basketball. Because I, just, I, I think he was, like I said, he was already on the verge. Like, he was already burnt out. And then that happens. And he's like, you know what? That's it. I'm done. I'm going to try to play baseball. Maybe, maybe the baseball thing, like maybe, maybe if his dad doesn't pass, maybe the baseball thing doesn't happen. But I, I think retirement was already on his mind. And not even necessarily retirement, Danny. I think he was looking at it as a break. Because he even said in his retirement press conference, oh, this means, you know, retirement means you can do whatever you want. I can come back. So I think already in his mind, he was like, I just need to step away. And so yeah. I, I don't think it was anything more complicated than a guy being burnt out and taking a break. It's so hard to continue with the conspiracy theories when you had so many other people corroborating the fact that, yeah, he wanted to step away and he wanted to play baseball. You had, um, you know, David Stern there saying that there was nothing there and he wanted to play baseball. You had David Falk, his agent. Um, there was the the writer of, I forget the name of the book, but uh, the author of a book on Michael Jordan who said that he heard, Mike told him about that you know, before the dream team that he wanted to leave and play basketball, you know. Um, so there's so many people corroborating. It's hard to stick with the conspiracy theories. But I think the number one thing for me is that when I think back on that time when he dropped that double nickel in the garden and the fact that Mike was, you know, the, the I'm back facts, like that moment in time, it was just hysteria. Like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? Like you were out in the street and I like, heard that. Michael Jordan's back, and you're like, oh, when's he, pl when's he playing? Like, it was just like – He's wearing number 45. And you're like, what? Man, it, it, it was absolute pandemonium. Um, but uh, enough from, about us, from us, man. Let's hear from someone who has uh, forgotten more basketball knowledge than we'll ever know, uh, Larry Brown, uh, NBA Hall of Famer, uh, taking the time with us to come on the Sixers Talk podcast and just expound on all these topics and digging deep on a – a lot more, a lot of gems here. So please enjoy uh, Paul and my conversation with Larry Brown. Your NBC Sports Philadelphia podcast are now on the My Teams app. Listen to Eagle Eye, Sixers Talk, Phillies Talk, and Flyers Talk right now. Pleasure to be joined by Larry Brown, a man who needs no introduction to Sixers fans or basketball fans around the globe, uh, NBA Hall of Famer joining us. And Coach, we're just going to dive right into it. We appreciate you coming on. Uh, I'm sure you've been keeping up with the Last Dance documentary. I'm curious to get your perspective as someone who, obviously a University of North Carolina guy, but also someone whose coaching career really spanned the, the, the gamut from Michael's uh, college career all the way up to both of his retirements. Uh, what, what's the good, bad, and the ugly from what you've seen from the documentary so far? I wanted to get your impressions. I'm a Carolina fan, so I don't see any bad nuggets. <laughs> come on, come impartiality, impartiality. No, I. To be honest with you, um, when Kobe passed away, um, I was kind of crushed, and a lot of people that have, you know, coached with me or played for me, were coaching at the time, and they they told me their young kids were devastated because. You know, Kobe was the guy. Um, they all looked up to him. They all wanted to be like him. They had unbelievable respect for him. Uh, from my personal standpoint, uh, I knew Kobe when he was young. 
and I was a big fan. And then I was becoming even a bigger fan, what he was doing with himself after basketball. Um, my generation or, you know, when I got back to college, um, Michael was the guy um, that everybody looked up to. Um, everybody wanted to be like him. And, you know, I don't think anybody was more respected in the NBA or or who was involved in basketball than Michael Jordan. So I'm kind of thrilled that just documentary is out because, you know, God gives you a talent, but, you know, you got to work at it. And nobody worked any harder than Michael or competed any harder than him. And I think it's neat for the kids to see that are probably getting an opportunity to watch The Last Dance to realize that as blessed as he was, nobody competed any harder, cared about winning more than he did. And then they just show the extraordinary, you know, things he was able to do. Um, and it didn't come easy. You know, it, people, you know, talk about LeBron and Garnett and Kobe, you know, they came right out of high school. And that's remarkable. But when you watch the Jordan film, you don't see any young players playing. Um, people forget Michael went three years to college, retired for two. He actually missed five years of basketball. But when he was playing, he was playing against a league that wasn't watered down with a lot of young kids that were just given the opportunity to play. He was playing against veteran teams that had depth from one to 15 and the game was so physical and, and Michael just, he just dominated. And uh, I'm happy kids see that. One of the things you touched on coach Brown is the fact that Michael did go to college. You know, he wasn't this guy like a LeBron who was right out of high school what were your, do you remember your first impressions of Michael when you first saw him or first heard about him? And, and what was that experience like? You know, I was real close to the Carolina program. Coach Smith was kind of my mentor. Um, they had told me about Michael um, when he went to their summer camp. Uh, you know, he wasn't that highly recruited, I think, until that summer from his junior to his senior year. I think he played JV actually as a sophomore at Laney High School. Um, but they're pretty secretive in Chapel Hill, but at the time they thought they had a kid at their camp that was as good as anybody in the country. Um, and I think he made a great decision. You know, there's a lot of unbelievable coaches out there and great programs. But from my experience, you know, it doesn't make, get any better than Coach Smith. And I, I think the fact that Michael stayed in school um, and had the chance to work under coach in that kind of atmosphere, um, it helped his growth. Uh, and then I don't know if it was really obvious to everybody, but you know, coach wanted Michael to leave after his junior year. I don't think Michael was completely set on that. I think he thought about coming back. But coach had always believed that 
if you were going to be a lottery pick and he felt you were ready, he, he didn't want you to come back to school. He thought it was time for you to go out and earn a living and you could always come back and graduate. He usually put that in your contract, you know, that if you left early, you made more money if you came back and got your degree. Your degree. Coach, we've had the pleasure of having uh, P.J. Carlissimo on to talk about the, the documentary and uh, coaching with and against Michael Jordan. We had Jim Lynham on to talk about coaching against Michael Jordan and his experiences when he first saw him. Um, overwhelmingly, their perspective on Jordan, where he fits in the NBA lexicon and, and history, is the fact that listen to how his peers talk about him. Um, and that gives you an in- insight into just how great he was. Uh, would you agree with that sentiment? And, and how would you uh, measure his greatness when it comes to NBA uh, history? You know, I think Michael's as good as we've ever seen in the game. But I get a little kind of turned off by people saying this guy's the greatest and he's the greatest. Because when Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell were playing, you know, it was a whole different era then. Everybody was saying they were the greatest of all time. You know, Russell won 11 championships in 13 years. They changed about four or five rules to combat against Will. Um, And both those guys actually couldn't play till their classes graduated. Will Tony played two years of college ball. You know, freshmen were ineligible. Um, He played two years. Then he played a year with the Globetrotters before he could sign. When I was growing up, It was Oscar and Jerry West, um, and I don't think anybody would dispute their greatness. Uh, Then came Larry Bird and Magic, and then you and I know there was a little guy in Philly named Allen Iverson. (laughs) There was a remarkable player before Allen in Philly named Julius Irving. Uh, Growing up, I played with Connie Hawkins and Roger Brown. So we can go on and on about great guys during great eras. But you said something that was really, I think, important. Anybody that coached against Michael or played against Michael or played with Michael had the most respect for him. And without question, they all thought he was the best. When you hear, you know, Charles and you hear Larry Bird and you hear Magic, you know, guys that we all can say are as good as anybody say that Michael was just in an, on another level. That kind of tells you how much respect they had for him. So I guess that's a perfect segue, Coach, because you bring up the little guy from Philly, uh, Allen Iverson. And I, it's funny, we're going back, and obviously today's the anniversary of the, of the practice press conference. And I, I will ask you about that, but not quite yet. But um, one of the things in doing some research and looking back and uh, full disclosure, Alan was my, I'm 35 years old. Alan was my favorite player growing up. That Sixers team was really important to me that you coached. And when I watched Alan's retirement, the retirement uh, of his Jersey, the number three, you had sent in a video cause you couldn't be there. So you sent in a video uh, to, you know, express congratulations. And the one quote you said, and it gave me chills and it gives me chills thinking about it now is, that you believe that God put you in Philadelphia to coach Allen Iverson and just all of your ups and downs with Allen. And and obviously, you know, you guys had your moments, you had your moments of greatness and 
some of your lower moments, but looking back on it now, just what was the experience like coaching Allen and, and being in Philadelphia and, and the run you guys had? Well, I'm in Charlotte right now and Allen's living in Charlotte. Uh, he made me a better coach. He made me a better person. Um, you know, I, I used to tell him all the time, as much as people loved and admired, you know, Magic and Larry and, and Michael, Julius, um, Alan had his own group that admired him because most people could identify with him. You know, he was barely six feet tall, 165 pounds. Uh, nobody competed any harder or tried any harder to win a ball game. Um, yeah, he had some issues that troubled me because I, you know, we even talked today. I brought him to, to my teams at SMU. Um, I never thought Allen gave himself a chance to, to even be better than he really was um, because he didn't approach the game the same way that maybe a Kobe or a Michael did. And he knows that. Um, you know, he had a hell of a quote when Kobe passed away. He said, basically, when Kobe was getting up, you know, at 6 a.m. to work out, a lot of times Allen was coming home. Um, you know, that frustrated me because I didn't think anybody was more athletic or had a big, more of a gift to be great than Allen. And I coached some great players. Um, uh, he had unbelievable respect from his teammates and, you know, from our coaches. And But, but I think there are things that he could have done better. But at the end of the day, I'm so proud I got to coach him and be around him because he helped me as I moved forward. Uh, I wish I had it to do all over again to coach him because I think I could have done a little better job with him. But, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, for me, this will to win um, and what he meant to that city. And when you just say, hey, coach, that was one of my favorite teams, I can't go anywhere where people don't stop me and say that 2001 team with Allen Iverson might have been the favorite team I ever watched. And we didn't win a championship. Um, you know, we got to the finals. People forget Geiger wouldn't play. Um, George Lynch was hurt. We had got we picked up Raja Bell from the YMCA in Miami. Jermaine Jones was starting on our team. We had Rodney Buford. We had Kevin Ollie. We had Todd McCullough. Um, we didn't have the same kind of team that we had at the beginning of the year when everybody was healthy. Now I don't I don't know if we could have beaten the Lakers. They were truly spectacular they had an unbelievable coach um but i think if you think about it that the series might have been a little bit different we lost game two really at the foul line um you know game one we won because you know eric made an unbelievable shot Allen was out of his mind and geiger even played i think he got 10 points in 14 minutes but uh but people see me in the airport 
and they look at me and they don't know my name, but they say, you coached Alan. I, <laughs> and, uh, I get, I get so tickled about that. I tell Alan that all the time. I think Larry Brown is easier to remember than Allen Iverson. I'm just going to go on record by saying like Larry and Brown is just easier to put together, but um, it's just incredible stories, coach. We appreciate you sharing that with us. I, I really, you know, to stay on that 2001 team, um, when you look at, you mentioned the greatness of that Lakers team. That was the only game that they lost was that game that you guys took in their run to the championship. Uh, having seen so much basketball and, you know, played so much basketball and coached so much basketball, do you ever reflect on how special a moment that was just to be able to win that game considering the where they fit and kind of the history of basketball with the success that that, that that team had? Well, my team thought we could win. You know, that's we thought we could win the series. That's the way, you know, you went into it because, right. you know, but you're right. Uh, when you look at Kobe, that was when Kobe was as good as anybody. You look at Shaq, that was probably when Shaq was at his best. They had Robert Ory, who we all know makes every big shot. You know, Phil Jackson won so many championships. You know, a lot of people say, oh, he won championships because he had great players. You know, that's not the easiest thing to do. Um, you know, you might have great players. But as a coach, you got to bring out the best in them and make them, you know, to play together and play the right way. But personally, I thought we could win. You know, I was hoping Geiger could play. It was a shame George got hurt. Um, but, you know, we had a little guy that, you know, believed in himself and everybody believed in him as well. But, But the reality is that, the Lakers were pretty damn good. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really curious what would have happened if we made our free throws in game two. Can you, you know, to go to L.A. and to have an opportunity to win the first two games on the road against a team that didn't lose any playoff games, that was pretty remarkable. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, I thought most – Almost every game but one was really competitive. Um, and they just made plays when they needed to make plays. And we were playing some young guys that, you know, I was so proud of that they could compete on a high level in that kind of environment. So then I want to take you, you know, a year later, um, a lot of changes occur within the team. Uh, you know, you said George was such a big part of that team. He winds up being traded and, you know, some overturn there. You get to Kembe for a full season. Um, I believe, yeah, you bring in Matt Harpering at that point. But that season doesn't go as you guys would have liked, you know, losing in the first round to Boston. Then, you know, with Allen and everything he had gone through in his personal life with his, you know, losing his best friend and uh, just it seemed to all culminate on that day, on that press conference uh, when with the practice uh, rant what do you remember from that day? And can you give us any insight of, of, of any of your conversations you've had with Alan around that time? And uh, just what kind of your, from your eyes, what that day was like? Well, um, I wasn't aware that Alan had lost his, his friend. Um, and we all, we all got to understand that there wasn't a more loyal guy than Alan Iverson. Um, 
where he grew up, you know, his mom had him when he was, when she was really young. Um, the kids in his neighborhood, that was his, that was his group that stayed together forever, forever. Um, matter of fact, when he came to play for the Sixers, you know, so many of his friends came with him. Um, that's how loyal he was. Uh, the thing that, you know, I get confused because I heard, you know, Billy King had his own ideas about what happened and what brought all this on. And, and Pat, you know, two people I admire a lot. You know, both of them were unbelievable to work with and work for. Mr. Snyder is the best owner you could possibly have in sports. Um, I remember, you know, Alan missed the meeting. You know, you usually have a meeting after the uh, the playoffs. Um, and at that time, you know, it was a five-game series, I think. So you lose one game, all of a sudden things can change. Uh, we were all disappointed. You have the meeting, you know, usually with your players. After the season ends, you talk about what we did well, what we needed to do better. Players tell me, you know, what I needed to improve on. Um, Alan didn't show up. Um, and I remember my recollection as I met Alan, you know, at the practice arena, uh, practice facility, um, after he didn't show up for the meeting. And all he wanted to talk to me about was, you know, you're not going to trade me, coach. Um, please make sure you you keep me here. I want to be here. I want to play in Philly. I love Philly. I don't want to play anywhere else. And my conversation with him is, you know, Alan, you got to change. You know, you're the best player. Everybody, you know, follows you. If you could just spend more time working on your craft and not just, you know, compete every game as hard as you possibly can, uh, you can help us, you know, maybe take it to the next level. You'd be a great, to me, example for the younger kids. And if they see you not doing all the right things, it's very difficult for a coach to get the most out of his his team. And he listened to me. He's really respectful, but he kept coming back. Coach, please tell me I'm not going to be traded. Well, you know, I, I told him that because Billy and I and, and Pat had talked about it. Um, and then there was like a three-hour gap between the press conference he was going to have and the conversation I had with him. Now, I can't tell you what he was doing during those three hours. But the first question basically was, you know, are you going to get traded? You know, he, oh, no, excuse me. He wanted to hear from the people out there, hey, Alan, you know, coach said he's not going to trade you. You're going to be here. And the first thing they asked them was about practice. And that that set him off um, because his, his only thought about that press conference was, hey, I'm going to be back here. I'm going to be back with coach. I'm going to back, be back with the teammates I love. And we're going to try to build on what we did before hopefully to you know make our team better so coach from your perspective it was basically 
he was going into that press conference thinking that's all that was going to be basically that's all that was going to be discussed was hey I, I talked to coach I'm here to stay I'm not being traded and then just when it turned into the practice thing that's when it got negative and that's when it kind of got a little bit more uh, a little more tense a little more a little more you know a little more combative maybe. Well, obviously, and I, I said, I don't know what he did the three hours between me talking to him. But but I did talk to Alan, you know, about practice, about doing things the right way. Because, again, you know, when your best player buys into all the things you're trying to accomplish, you know, it's so much easier to coach. Now, that had nothing to do with when it came game time. You know, because you, you said it before, every single time he played, he tried to win. Um, the game was so much more physical than than it is now. I, he probably averaged 50 a game. I I had said this a number <laughs> of times that, that Michael Jordan would have averaged 50 a game. And I just recently heard his agents say that. But you can't get a nearer guy now. Um without him going to the free throw line. And and you guys know as competitive as Allen was, I think a lot of, you know, referees might have taken a little exception to Allen. Now, they might be mad at me for saying that, but it's just human nature that a kid as competitive as he is, when he feels like he's getting abused and getting fouled, he's going to tell you that. And I, and I don't think he got the benefit of the calls he might have gotten. So if he'd have played today with the way they call the game and as hard as he competes and as talented as he is, there's no doubt in my mind he'd score it well. Coach, uh, just wanted to get your impressions on something Shaquille O'Neal said not too long ago, particularly when it came to Allen Iverson and Basically, to paraphrase, he said that, you know, one of the games where Allen went nuts and oftentimes where he would score a lot of points, Shaq would allow players like Allen, who he really liked, and to get off. Um, do, do you buy into any of that? Or are you laughing already? Do you buy into that? <laughs> no, anything Shaquille says, I believe. Um, you know, Shaquille averaged like 45 points a game in games that I coached because we never hacked a Shaq, Shaquille. Mm-hmm. So every time he's, and we very rarely double teamed him. So every time he sees me, he kisses me on the lips. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. But, you know, it's it's kind of amazing. You, you see Shaquille now, and he's so big. Uh you know, and, and toward the end of his career, most people remember him as being that big. But I remember when I was at Indiana, when he was playing with Penny, we lost to them in the conference finals mm-hmm. um, with Orlando. They had Anderson, uh, they, they had Scott. They, they had an amazing team. I that was 94? Yeah, something like that. I'm, mm-hmm. no, and, okay. but, but, you know, you looked at Shaquille then, um, he was unbelievably athletic. Um, and, you know, to play with him and Penny together, it, you know, I think Penny Hardaway, if he didn't hurt his knees, 
we'd be talking about him as being one of the greatest that ever played. But that was a special young team. And when I was at Indiana, we lost in seven game, seventh, the seventh game at Orlando. Um, but Shaq's pretty special. I love what he does now. You know, I love the way he promotes the game. Um, but, I, you know, like you said, in answering that question, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, him letting guys go by. But maybe he didn't want to foul, get in foul trouble. That might have been the real motive. <laughs> I just want to take it back again to the to the 2001 team. And obviously there's always extenuating circumstances, especially when, you know, in a salary cap era, and there's a lot of things that go into personnel decisions and it's not, you know, all black and white. But is there a part of you that wishes you would have been able to just run it back with that same team? Since, you know, you said like your team believed Allen believed that you could have beaten that Lakers team, whether that's realistic, that's another thing. But, you know, you had this belief and you did, you were the only team that was able to beat them even one game. So is there a part of you that maybe wishes that you could have been able to have that same team and and ran it back out there for another season? George Lynch was an interesting thing. Um, George obviously went to North Carolina. We picked George up, if people remember. He got drafted in the first round by the Lakers. The expansion draft, he got picked up by Vancouver, and he wasn't even playing for them. And Coach Smith and I talked, and we brought George with us, and he became great. But the lockout came, and uh, we had offered George the opportunity to play one year and then go into free agency or to accept, you know, a six year contract. And at that time, the six year contract was not going to be as much as after the lockout, after the collective bargaining agreement. So George talked to coach and coach Smith said, look, George, you can take your chances on being a free agent, play one year, or you can take the security. I think it was an $18 million contract spread over six years. And uh, George talked to me about it. And I said, George, that's that's up to you and Julie. I, I can't make you make this decision. Uh, at the end of the day, he took the long-term contract. Um, Eric Snow, we offered Eric Snow $900,000 at the same time. But because of the lockout, he couldn't accept the contract. When the collective bargaining agreement came out, the the uh, new contracts almost doubled. So Eric went from making nine hundred thousand dollars a year to signing a six-year deal that started at four million. That was kind of the thing that set George off a little bit. All of a sudden. You know, they were in the same kind of situation. We offered Eric a lot less because he was the fourth string point guard with Seattle when we brought him in. If people remember, they had Greg Anthony, Nate McMillan, and Gary Payton. We we got Eric firstly for nothing. So that's the reason George left, because after a couple of years, um, you know, his agent he got a new agent. And the agent said they weren't underpaying you, but you couldn't change his contract. There was nothing you could do because of the collective bargaining agreement. And we lost him. 
and he was such a big part of our team. You know, you couldn't replace a George Lynch. And every year, no matter how good you are, you always have to try to get better. Um, everybody in Philly had this idea that we always needed another scorer to play with Allen. You know, they brought in Glenn Robinson. They brought in Chris Weber at one time. They brought in Tony Kukoc. They brought in Matt Hartbring. Um, we can go on and on and on. But it was our belief and my personal belief that you had to surround Allen with the right kind of guys. Um, unfortunately, Larry Hughes played one year for us, and I thought he was going to be great. But because we had Eric and Aaron and Allen, Larry, you know, wasn't necessarily going to be a starter. And after his first year, that was the only thing he had on his mind. So we unfortunately, we had, a, we had to move Larry. We ended up getting Tyrone Hill, who became a huge part of our team. But, but I, I, I was sick when George left. Um, you can't replace him. And, and again, I think we, in all fairness to Allen, we had to continue to grow and try to make that team better. Coach, I want to um, talk a little bit about something that I really hope you can lend a little perspective on. Um, you know, you, we've talked about Kobe, we've talked about Michael, and as a basketball fan myself, even, you know, Kobe's 20-year career, the length of Michael's career, it still baffles me the way Kobe mimics Michael's game and his mannerisms and the walking, the gum chewing, the way he talks. Like It just it still baffles me that he was able to copy the fadeaway. The, the you, you know what I'm saying. I mean, you you've seen the both play. The, the, do you feel the same way about that? Does that still like something that that amazes you? The, the way Kobe mimicked Michael's game and the ways he did. You know, at the time, I don't know if I thought about that. You know, now listening to Last Dance and then listening to Kobe when he ended his career, and then all of a sudden, unfortunately, we lose this unbelievable human being to some tragedy. You hear more and more of the influence Michael had on him. But when you coach against Michael and you coach against Kobe, like I was fortunate enough to do, you had this unbelievable respect for both of them. Mm -hmm. uh, you knew there was no way you were going to stop them. You just tried to make sure that if they did score a lot of points, they had to take a lot of shots. Um and, you know, I always hear about Jordan rules and Kobe rules about stopping players like that. You don't stop great players like that. But the thing that I think was connected them both is you hear what Kobe said about Michael's influence on him early in his career. Um, and I think that's another part of Michael Jordan that you have to admire and respect so much. Um, and then you also have to respect the worth work ethic of both those guys. You know, I, I might have said this earlier, but Coach Smith always used to say, you know, talent is a gift to God. You know, character is a choice. And it's basically saying you might have a gift, but if you want to fulfill that gift to the fullest, you just have to simply outwork everybody. And those two guys did that. And I don't know where Kobe got it. I'm sure his parents had a lot to do with it. I'm, I'm sure his high school coach and the people of, you know, around him did. But 
it seems to me ba- basically listening to the last dance um you know it was michael you know because kobe idolized michael you know that that's obvious i i um saw michael about 3 months ago just before this pandemic shut everybody down um i was in florida and michael has a new golf course that he built and we sat down for a long time and just talked and uh you know a lot of the conversation was about you know his career and players that influenced him and players that he respected and loved and you know obviously when you heard michael talk at kobe's memorial you realize the connection those two guys had man would love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation huh paul yeah that's <laughs> for sure <laughs> uh coach um here we are you know reflecting back on this last dance run by the bulls um basketball in the 90s has been emphasized a lot and particularly you mentioned it earlier it was a much older league than it is now you know you got guys like michael and scotty who are in their 30s kind of leading teams as opposed to you know if you take the sixers for instance you've got 23 and a 26 role and ben simmons and joel and so just like a completely you know juxtaposition um looking back on the basketball of the 90s uh do you feel like like, man, we, we were really rough on each other getting away with a lot. Or did you feel like, man, basketball should be played more that way? How do you reflect on that? I like it better then. <laughs> I can't stand it now. I don't understand the game. I can't believe people in Philly are worrying about Ben Simmons shooting a three-pointer. That kid's as good as any player in the league. He mm-hmm. doesn't need to shoot a three-pointer. God might punish me for saying that. <laughs> but... He can guard, he rebounds the ball, he passes the ball as well as anybody. He's completely unselfish. Um, it, but it's a different game. You know, uh, if if you looked at the teams back then, the only guys that shot three-pointers were guys that could make it. Specialists, right. Yeah, now everybody shoots a three-pointer. Nobody tries to get to the free-throw line. You know, when they run on a fast break, guys run right to the corner. And what even drives me even madder is that the defender runs right with them to the corner, which blows my mind. (laughs) Um, You you don't see true low post players very much anymore. They traded Capella and Drummond, two of the best centers in basketball. and, And you can't tell me what they got for those guys. I think Cleveland got a second round pick for the guy that was leading the league in rebounding and block shots. And if you don't put a value on that, it's insane. Joel B. Um, I try to recruit Joel early on when I was at SMU. One of the players that played Mabute, who played in the league, mm-hmm. you know, was very close to Joel and told me, hey, this would be a good kid for you. So, but you're not gonna beat. At SMU, you're not going to be Kansas and Kentucky and people like that unless you have a real personal relationship. Uh, but when I, I see Joel, um, I don't think anybody's better than him. Um, he might get mad at me today, but, you know, he needs to get on the block. And he needs to block every shot and denominate it on the, on the post. 
because he'll open it up for everybody else. And I don't think there's a better big man in the game than him. And then, you know, I knew him when he was at Kansas. Uh, you know, Bill Self worked for me. I was lucky enough to coach there. They thought he's the best player ever went to Kansas, um, potentially. You know, I coached a kid named Danny Manning who wasn't bad. But, uh, but Joel, and they thought his basketball IQ was as high as anybody. You know, my hope for him is that he would think about Kobe and Michael and watch the last dance and realize the gift that he has and just spend all his time, you know, working on that craft because there's nobody could be any more dominant than him. It brings up an interesting point, Coach, because we had uh, P.J. Carlissimo on uh, a couple uh, pods ago. We asked about the idea, and, you know, we've talked about it being a much older league back then and it being so much younger, and you're looking at a Sixers team that has Joel Embiid at 26, Ben Simmons at 23, and the expectations, you know, from here and even nationally before the season started were this team – looks like it can win a title. Do you think there that is kind of a fair cuz like you look at Michael, he wasn't he was 28 when he won his first title. When you look at even, you know, LeBron, he was I think 27 when he won his first title. Is it fair to expect a 26-year-old and a 23-year-old to win an NBA title? Well, look at the shot that uh was made against them in the Toronto series, you know. You could shoot that shot 25 times and have it bounce the same way it did and it ain't going in. So they got close. But here's my deal. They lost Butler and J.J. You can't replace those two guys. Now, again, I hope I'm not having people mad at me, but <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Al Herford. But he's a center. You know, and his greatest, he has so many great gifts about being a great guy, unbelievable teammate, and a tremendous talent. But now he got to guard four men. And four men have to guard him. And that's made it real tough for him. Harris has killed four men because of his athleticism and the the ability to put it down on the floor and shoot an outside shot. Now he's playing three and guarding smaller and quicker guys than him. And again, when you have Joel and you have Al, it, it makes it a little bit more difficult on him. So to me, there's a, there's a lot of things that as great as Philly might be and the future is so bright. And they have a great coach in my mind. They don't have, in my mind, the way I would look at a team, the kind of positioning that those guys need to play. You know, Shake Milton played for me at SMU, one of the greatest kids I've ever been around in my life. Um, and, and he loves it there, respects the coaches, loves the players. Just from an outsider, people, you know, people think the game has passed me by and it probably has. Uh, but, I, you know, I believe in defending, rebounding, sharing the ball and the scores shoot the ball and the other guys do the job to make each other better. 
But I just don't know if that team fits. You know, they might have the talent, but a lot of times you have talent, but it, it's a matter of people fitting together. And when you lose JJ and you lose Butler, and then you have some guys in my mind. Now, I'm, I'm not around them every day, but I watch every game as much as I can. Um, I think sometimes when people have to play out of position, and the defense is such a big part of this, it makes it a little bit difficult for Philly right now, in my mind. I think most yep. people in Philly would agree with you. <laughs> you, you, really, you really believe that? No, I, I would say maybe not the team, but I would say that a lot of fans, a lot of uh, folks that cover the team would tend to agree. I mean, just for me, covering the team and watching it on a nightly basis, I, it's more than fair to me to question Al Horford and Joel Embiid playing next to each other. And I think what you hit on was spot on, Coach. When I saw Tobias Harris, to me, he's at his best when he's playing a four and he's taking advantage of bigger players and can kind of, you know, and have his way in that regard. And also, again, defensively, it's huge to have a guy like Tobias Harris guarding a four instead of a three. I think it makes him infinitely more valuable and better. So, no, I, I think I think you're nailing it, to be honest with you. But I also – I want to talk more about Shake Milton because, um, you know, obviously he blew up in the national spotlight. We kind of had an idea. You know, we saw bits and pieces of his game over the last couple of years – where you saw like, hey, this kid has a little something, and then he obviously goes nuts against the Clippers and becomes a national storyline. What was it like for you, you know, recruiting him, and then and then you know, what was it like being around him, and and, and then when you saw that moment, how how much pride did you feel, and like what what was that like for you experiencing that? Well, um, you know, he's from Oklahoma, Tulsa. He lost his dad, you know. Um, we got real lucky. We actually beat Oklahoma and Indiana, you know, to recruit him. I, I had a great staff. We established a, a really good relationship, you know, with Shake and his family. Uh, you won't find a better kid than him and somebody that, you know, really trusts the process. Uh, and Philly did a remarkable job with him, you know, uh, working with them, playing in the G League in Delaware, you know, Shake told me was was huge. He, he even told me he played two games in one night. Um, I remember uh, when he came to Dallas when I was at SMU. I had actually re retired for the year, but I went to see him play, and that was when they only came one time. And it, I think it might have been the last game of the season. And he didn't play very well. And I went up to Monty Williams, who I, I had coached and admired. And I asked my, Monty what he thought about Shake and his chances. He said, he said Coach, we love him. He's going to be terrific. Um, he's, we just got a team right now that's pretty deep. But he's getting better every day. He, he respects the game and respects coaching. And that's the kid that I saw. Um, you know, people forget, um, early in his, his last year, his junior year, everybody projected him as the first round pick. Then he got hurt. Um, he, he didn't play the rest of the year. He went to the combine and one of the first games that he played in, he got hurt and didn't tell anybody. 
um, and didn't play as well in the combine as most people expected. Um, I got calls from everybody in the NBA asking me about Shake and his character and what I thought about him. And obviously, you know, I, I love the kid and was, was very, very high on him. And the, re, the remarks to me is where does he play? And the NBA in some ways, they tell you what a kid can't do instead of telling you what a cat kid can do. And I always, that bugs me a little bit, but, um, Philly drafted him at number 54. You know, he slipped considerably because of his showing in the combine. And then when they examined him, they found out he was hurt. They were really upset and thought that I think um, Leon uh, Rose represented him. Um, You know, and I, I had known Leon and loved him and told Sheik and his family, you can't get a better person to have represent you than Leon. And uh, a lot of people were upset at him and thought they, you know, they pulled something over Philly's eyes. But, you know, Shake couldn't work out for anybody during that time. And, the, and a lot of times after the combine, when you have an individual workout, that's how people judge you. But uh, the greatest thing is they had patience with him. They had some injuries, and you never know when your the opportunity is going to be there for you to show you can play. And the fact that he was playing in Delaware, when he was able to play for Philly, he was in game shape. Um, I used I used to have this everywhere I've been. Um, a lot of people told me I worked the guys too hard. Sometimes I wasn't sensitive about guys that played a lot of minutes. But I, I always remembered the guys that never played, we didn't have a G League. So the guys that never played, I used to have a regular practice with them, with our staff, because I never wanted to put a kid in a game where he couldn't show what he was capable of doing. And if he didn't get the practice time and the repetition, he would never have an opportunity to show that. And guys used to knock on my door on the road and say, hey, coach, let's find a gym. You know, let's bring this staff so we can work on our game. And I've always tried to do that. And I think Shake, by the staff they had and the attention they paid to him and with the team being in Delaware, that allowed Shake to do what he did. Well, Coach, you always have carte blanche on this podcast. You're welcome anytime. We appreciate you joining us and spending some time with us. Well, you made my day, you guys. Thanks so much. Stay safe. Stay well. You too, Coach. Same to you, Coach. Wilmington University extends its deepest appreciation to the brave individuals who are working tirelessly on the front lines to protect, serve, and care for us during this unprecedented time. Thank you. WilmU stands with you. Woo! Uh, Coach Brown, we appreciate you coming on with us, like we said. And, you know, Paul... You know, so many stuff, stuff to, um, so much stuff to unpack there. But I'm going to use that to segue into one of our final topics, which is a great article you have up on NBC Sports Philadelphia website about the worst five draft picks in 76ers history. And yeah, it, it probably was hard to pick five. I mean, <laughs> looking at the names, 
Um, I, I'll just throw out some people who didn't make the list, like Jaleel Okafor, uh, Nerlens Noel, um, Evan Turner, who I mentioned before, didn't make the list. I mean, there's a bunch of guys who you could throw out there. Um, Speedy Claxton, um, interesting pick uh, for, of a guy like Larry Brown. But let's get into your list, Paul. Uh, start with number five. We'll count down to one. So number five, I actually had as the year that they selected Keith Van Horn, but then traded his rights to get picks seven and twenty-one, and they take Tim Thomas out of Villanova, and they take Anthony. Don't call me Tony Parker at twenty-one. And <laughs> listen, I oh uh, Candace Parker's brother. That that was Anthony Parker, right? Was that? Is was that it, I honestly didn't know that. I, Is that really I, a fact? Yeah, I, I think that's her brother. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, because um, she told a story about. Um, one time, I think uh, Anthony uh, played with Iverson later in his career, and he got her one of Iverson's number three uh, finger bands. Ah, she wore that okay. forever. Yeah, so go ahead. Got I'm you. sorry. No, it's all good. So to me, like, they could have just stood – they could have just – they outsmarted us a little bit. They could have just stood pat, taking Van Horde at number two, and that would have worked out okay. He wouldn't have been – like, he was fine, Van Horde. He wasn't great, wasn't an all-star, but he was a solid player. And, and he takes team eventually. <laughs> like, and he, I know, right? He winds up. Last of that was listen, Larry Brown, who was I, I don't want to you know go too far into Larry Brown, who was a was such a sweet guy to us and was very gracious with us. But like, man, Larry loved to reacquire dudes. <laughs> like yeah. that was like a Larry Brown staple. He loved to get guys to bring guys back. So it's almost like that was like a weird way of him doing that. But um, yeah, but I mean, if they would have just kept Van Horn, or even I don't know if you remember, Dan, you know who went two picks after Tim Thomas. Uh, Tim Thomas in 97. Um, I don't know who. A uh, fellow named Tracy McGrady went two picks Ooh. after Tim Thomas. He was a project, though. So he was. a high school guy. And what was Tim Thomas? They tell you Tim Thomas after 100 games. Like He was supposed to be a one and done. But, but I think that's the overwhelming theme of your article, which you like, can't avoid, which I think is such a valid point, is these dudes, they, not, not that they give up on them, but they play such little time. There's no time yeah. with the team. 100 games here, 88 games there. That's what it is. 40 games here. I'm glad you bring that up. It's like that's why when I look at Evan Turner, for a couple reasons I didn't include him. One, at the time, we all thought it was a good draft pick. Everyone thought it was a good draft pick. Some people, I see some people, someone commented, say like, oh, man, I was so mad they didn't take Boogie Cousins. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. Everyone, everyone Evan Turner Evan was the Turner. player of the year. He was the yes. player of the year. So everyone, it, it, like when you look at a consensus, everyone said John Wall, Evan Turner. Every, it, it was not. It wasn't this complicated thing. Like everyone, with, knew. With the same thing you could say about the Fultz argument as well. And, and that's yeah. that's the argument I made there as well. It was a consensus. What you can, but anyway, with Evan Turner, just to get back to him real quick, he played like two hundred and fifty games here. He played multiple seasons, and the pick wasn't that. Like you know, like I said, the pick at the time. So. I don't include him on this list because I don't think it was as bad as maybe some people think. I mean, I get it. It was the number two overall pick, and you whiffed, so it's not great. But at least he played basketball for the 76ers for an extended period of time. Yeah, hit game winners, uh, important shots, important moments. Yeah. Yeah. And with Fultz, yeah, I mean, that's – to me, you can't knock the pick because, again, I think we were all on board with the pick. What you can knock is the trade that Brian Clangelo made. Maybe Brian Clangelo – should have been smarter than to do a deal with Danny Ainge. Maybe he should have thought that one out a little bit more. So that that's that was number four for me. I, I maybe maybe people think that's a little too low, 
But Who I was number four? Number four. I have Fultz at number four. Markel Fultz at number four because of yeah. reasons we've just talked about. Right. I got you. Right. And because they thought yeah. he was going to be the perfect complement to Ben and Joe, and it seemed like that was going to be the case. And, it just and the consensus that was that he was the guy. I mean, a lot of people who we respect were in, fallen, were in love with what he brought to the table. If you the go back and look at every single mock draft from that year, everyone had Markel Fultz number one. And not just after the Sixers traded for the pick. They had him the number one when the Celtics had the number one pick. Everyone thought Markel Fultz was the number one pick. So that's why I can't kill the Sixers. I can't. I can't look for at not having Jason Tatum or someone like right. And they weren't. There was no yeah. chance. There. I mean, there was no chance for them to get Jason Tatum. That's a whole other argument that I don't even want to get into. Uh, but yeah, so Fultz is four. Uh, man, now I'm already like number three. Up. Number three was <laughs> Sharon Wright, baby. Right, my guy. I tell yeah. you. Uh, you know, he was. <laughs> <laughs> he he sounds so bitter. He said, "My uh, guy, I'll tell you." Well, he sounds so bitter. Because for listen, because for me, this is the way I've looked at this list. And listen, it's a personal list. It's my opinion. We talk about how bad those errors of Sixers basketball were. Part of that was they made two really bad draft picks in back-to-back years. And Sharon Wright was the second pick in that year. This is ninety-three. This was ninety-four. They took Sharon Wright. Okay. But then you look at the list of guys that went after him. And, like, I know some people are like, oh, well, there's no, like, like all-star push. But Sean Wright barely played for the Sixers. And you look at all the guys who went, like, all these, like, solid guys. I mean, Eddie Jones, who was an all-star. Eddie Jones was great. I loved Eddie Jones. He was one of my favorite players. In their own backyard, they didn't take Eddie Jones. Aaron McKee went at, like, 16 or 17. But there was, like, guys like Brian Grant, who wound up being a solid player. Jalen Rose. I mean, there were so many players they could have taken that would have had a – that were at least decent. Sean Wright barely played for this team, and they traded him to Toronto, and they got nothing for him. They got Ed Pinkney, who was done at that point, Tony Massenberg, and two second-round picks who did nothing. So Put your me, knees up. Yeah, to me, like, no. Or, or, or the, like, that did such a bad pick, and it set the organization so far back because of number one on the list, but we'll get to that. Number two. Maybe we should have talked about this at the start of the podcast. I'm getting depressed. <laughs> I'm getting, this is a low note. This is a low note to go out on. I'm gonna, I'll wrap it up. I'll, I'll give you a good kicker, Danny. Uh, number right. two. Number, <laughs> number two was Larry. Yes. Number two was Larry Hughes. Because, and it's not, listen, if you look back at Larry Hughes' career, getting a guy like that at number eight isn't that bad of a pick. But the issue is, he got picked right before two first ballot Hall of Famers, Dirk Nowitzki and Paul Pierce. I mean, and then he, I remember, I think Larry said to us, you know, um, Larry wasn't happy with, Larry Hughes wasn't happy with his role because he was behind Aaron McKee and Eric Snow. So uh, he almost, want, like, he pushed for a trade. So that's part of the I, reason why they unloaded him. And but, I didn't impress, I didn't impress Larry on the Paul Pierce thing. Nah, because he <laughs> because he admitted that he should have picked Kobe, so I you know I, I, all right he, he did one when he was in Indiana yeah he said, yeah so they so took Eric right. Pierre talk about the Indiana Pacers draft they took <laughs> well, Eric Pierre over Kobe. out of Colgate was he out of Colgate or Donald Foyle? Nah, you're thinking Kobe. of a Donald Foyle yeah yeah all right, all right. but uh damn Pierre where did he go oh he went to like Mississippi State I think I think he was Mississippi State damn Pierre okay. yeah yeah all right. he was like um, he was like five, that was gonna bug was, me all day if I didn't get that that was gonna bug me all day bro. But, uh, yeah, um, I didn't wear them out about the Paul Pierce thing. But, man, nah, uh, six, it's, Sixers is just ah. – um, And then, uh, well, number one, for me, number one. 
Oh, 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 we do we do have to say because he has admitted Larry Brown that he promised Larry Hughes he would pick him if he was available. So that that was why he ended up in Philly. Right, 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 right. And it's just yeah, it's I, I it's less about the player Larry Hughes was and more that the team passed on those two guys and so black. Right, right. So that's that to me is more what that's about. Um, number one, Sean Bradley. You could have had Penny Hardaway. Penny Hardaway went at number three. You took Sean Bradley. You make Sean the Bradley. great point. You make the point, though. <laughs> this guy played one year of college ball and went on a Mormon mission for two years and hadn't played basketball at all. And then he comes. Was, he was tall and he was somewhat athletic. That's it. That, that, that's, that's, where his, that's where his qualities end as a basketball player. He was very tall and was a little athletic. And, yeah, he blocked a ton of, sh- ton of shots. That's cool. He couldn't defend any of those big men in that day on the block. Like, you said, I, 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 uh, I know that he, like, and this is, like, not, a, like, this is not just me remembering it like this. He was, like, the most posterized big man of all time. You remember what Tracy McGrady did to him? Remember yes. what Shaq used to do to him? And, like, you could find literal like you could go through YouTube to find out a rabbit hole on YouTube of people dunking on Sean Bradley. Like, and that's the guy the Sixers took number two overall instead of Penny Hardaway. Even Jamal Mashburn went four. Jamal Mashburn would have been a better pick than Sean Bradley. Like, they just they really blew it. That to me, and like I said, then when you combine it with they took Bradley in '93, they take Wright in '94, and that just set them back so badly. But Danny, here's the here's the kicker. Here's the positive. Sometimes you got to go through something to come out the other side and be better and have something better happen. If they don't make those terrible draft picks, they are not terrible enough to get the number one pick in 1996 and select Allen Iverson. So that's the way you got to look at it. <laughs> now you're not buying that. <laughs> you know what, man? It's just. It's just so Philadelphia to have the silver lining be a workhorse blue collar didn't win the fight. Like he's like Rocky. You like 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 you know what I mean? Like just I well, Rocky know. won. Well, Rocky won. Well, Rocky won the title. In well, two. Well, in fairness, yeah, Rocky so he's like, Rocky like, like Rocky won. Right, Rocky won. Um, I don't know, man. I just so much futility, so many opportunities, so many what ifs. Uh, like I mentioned, the guys that we didn't even make the list, the guys that didn't make the list. Uh, but um, I don't know. You trade Keith Van Horn for Tim Thomas, and I, I, I used to like Tim Thomas, man. I, I, I think we all kind of did. Yeah. yeah, at the Watchmen Nova. They got, thought, they got Jim Jackson, too, who was like a solid two-guard, but then they traded him for Joe Smith, which was wound up being not a great trade. <sighs> Yeah. But the funny thing is, is they never pick the right local guys. Aaron McKee, Eddie Jones. Like, end up with Aaron McKee, but, like, at the time, you could have drafted them. We could have drafted Eddie Jones. You could have you could have picked, you know, Josh Hart. Um, you had Mikhail Bridges, but sent him away. You know what I mean? All like, of the – that's the thing I think about, Danny. All these Villanova guys they passed on in recent years, the year they took a Nova guy with Tim Thomas, it did not work out. <laughs> yeah, didn't work out, but um, hey, this always works out, right? Uh, this podcast so much fun, so cathartic, um, so gives us so much juice starting into the week. We will rejoin you on Friday. Uh, Larry Brown was excellent. We appreciate you hopping on with us, Coach, and uh, 
I mean, you think about, look at this gauntlet of Jim Lynham, PJ Carlissimo, Larry Brown. We've got to keep up with the Joneses here, Paul. Yeah, world, world be free. I'm just saying oh coaches. I'm just calling coaches. Yeah, okay, know. fair enough. But world, world in, a, in a class all his own. Um, we, we don't often get those gems he was telling. Man, um, took a lot of flack for that Kobe story, but uh, I it, saw is that. It, is. <laughs> it is what yeah, it is. He's the, like you, you said it. He's the OG, man. I'm listening to him. Right. Uh, thanks for tuning in with us. Uh, thanks for downloading. Thanks for your comments, thoughts, and suggestions. Keep those five-star ratings coming. Sixers Talk brought to you by Wilmington University with Paul Hudrick, our esteemed producer, Ben Barry. Thank you. We will see you next time.